The scripture reading for today comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, and Exodus 1, verses 122, verses 211. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Exodus 1.22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took, took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it in bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated, and uh, good morning again, and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. We are in week three of Advent, the first days that lead up to Christmas, the arrival of Jesus. And for Advent, we are continuing our sermon series called By Faith, Uh, which traces through the Old Testament saints that are mentioned in Hebrews 11. But during Advent, we are circling back and hitting up the people that we skipped the first time through, the big names in Hebrews 11, the heavy hitters, the people in the Old Testament that God made a covenant with. So we started off with Noah, and then last week we talked about Abraham and how God tested him, and Abraham passed the test, not withholding his only son, just like God has not withheld his only son from us. And this week, we're going to talk about Moses. And obviously, Moses was a part of the people crossing the Red Sea, which we talked about several weeks back. But today, we'll be looking more so at his earlier life, the faith that Moses displayed well before and leading up to the Exodus. 
And as we dive deeper into his story, we'll have three points listed in your bulletin for you. Uh, The faith of parents, first point. Second point, the faith to endure mistreatment. Then third, the faith to see the invisible. And so let's begin with our first point, the faith of parents. Is there anything that your parents did when you were growing up that you can't help but continue to do the same way? Anything that had an impact or an influence on you that your parents did? Well, this has probably come as no surprise to many of you, but one of the things that my parents did, in particular my dad, was to be early to things, to seemingly everything. That might mean getting to the airport three hours before our flight. It might mean being the first people in the movie theater. Or one that was particularly impactful was getting to church early. It would all start on Saturday nights, actually. My dad would you know, announce to the whole family that we were leaving for church the next morning at 10, 15 a.m. So everyone knew it was announced. Morning would come. I would be ready, sitting on the couch, watching Sports Center, waiting for us to leave. And my dad would come into the room, grab the television remote, and turn off the TV and say, it's time to go. And I would look at the time and say, it's only 10, 10. I have five more minutes. To which my dad would respond, it's time to go. And so we would go, and we would arrive at church, get to our seats by 10.30 a.m. for a service that did not start until 10.45, 15 minutes early. We were the only people there. Honestly, it was, it was overkill. My parents' commitment and habit to arriving early for worship uh, had an impact on me as a kid. It taught me something. It left an impression with me. You know, our family's time revolved around being present for Sunday worship to the point that we were talking about it and making plans for it Saturday night. And so from a very early age, it was instilled in me that life revolved around worship for the Christian. That's, and that's a priority and a habit that I've carried with me ever since. Our passage in Hebrews tells us about something Moses's parents did that had an impact on him. Hebrews 11.23 says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. You see, as our Exodus passage says in uh, Exodus 1.22, Pharaoh had put an edict out that every Hebrew son was to be cast into the Nile, essentially kill all the Hebrew sons that are born. I mean, can you imagine being a parent and not knowing whether you're if you were pregnant, whether you were having a son or daughter. That's the situation that Moses' mom found herself in. She was pregnant, and when she gave birth, it was a boy, which meant that Pharaoh had decreed that they needed to kill their baby. But Moses' parents didn't do that. They didn't kill Moses. They hid him for three months. They protected him. They saved his life which was at great risk to their own lives. You know, surely if it was discovered by the Egyptians that they had let their son live, then they all would have been killed. But Moses' parents weren't afraid of Pharaoh's edict. Instead, they had faith. You know, fear and faith are often two routes for how we live. Do we let fear drive our actions, or do we let faith drive our actions? And, you know, that's not to say that you don't feel afraid when you let faith drive your actions, often you will feel very afraid when you walk by faith. I'm sure that Moses' parents felt afraid, but they didn't let that feeling of fear drive them to drown Moses. Instead, 
by faith, they hid him and saved his life. But their faith didn't stop there. When Moses was three months old, it became too difficult to keep him hidden. And so Moses' mother made a basket, put Moses in it, and uh, set the basket in the river, which is kind of funny. It's you know, almost like a 10-year-old boy came up with this plan. Well, technically, we did cast our son into the Nile. You didn't say anything about not using a basket. And so she puts Moses in the basket, in the, in the Nile, total act of faith, trusting God with Moses' future. You know, she doesn't know what's going to happen to Moses. She's trusting God. And what happens is a pretty amazing example of God's grace and provision. So Moses' sister tracks the basket from the bank of the river to see what happens to Moses. And she sees that Pharaoh's daughter, who was bathing in the Nile, comes across the basket and discovers that there's a crying baby inside, a Hebrew child, and Pharaoh's daughter has pity on him. And she plans to take him. And so Moses' sister goes up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, do you want me to get a nurse from among the Hebrew women to care for the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter is like, yes, that's a great idea. And so Moses' sister goes to get Moses' mom, brings her to Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter then tells Moses' mom that she will pay her if she nurses and raises the child. And so Pharaoh's daughter will make this child her adopted son, but unbeknownst to her, she'll be paying Moses' biological mother to care for and nurse for him. All things considered, that's a pretty amazing outcome, probably far more than Moses' mom would have thought to ask or imagine from God. But that's faith, believing that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine. That's Moses' parents' faith. But I want to draw your attention to something interesting about our passage in Hebrews 11. So Hebrews 11.23 says, again, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. By faith, Moses. Kind of strange, right? How could Moses be credited as doing something by faith that really his parents did? Was it really Moses' faith if it was his parents that hid him? I mean, after all, Moses was in the first three months of life. Uh, He wasn't really doing anything but eating, sleeping, and you know what? Right? So how can Hebrews say then that being hidden by his parents was something that Moses did by faith? The reality is that the faith of parents is so closely associated with their children, it's almost like they are one and the same. Even before children themselves can profess faith, parents have faith on their behalf. Moses is three months old, and yet the author of Hebrews says that it's his faith by which he was hidden, because his faith is his parents' faith. Now, that doesn't mean that children of believers never reject the faith. Obviously, tragically, that does happen sometimes. But it changes our demeanor toward our children. We don't assume that they're outside the faith until they prove they are in. We assume that they are in the faith until they prove, heaven forbid, that they're out. We raise them as Christians. We treat them as Christians. We treat them like they share our faith because in their association to us, they do share our faith. There's something special about the children of believers. And we we know this naturally. We already know it. We treat our children, even before they profess faith, differently than we treat non-believers. You know, we don't act like our kids are little pagans. We disciple them. 
We teach them how to pray. We teach them stories from the Bible. We teach them the gospel. We make them come to church with us. We make them go to Sunday school. We discipline them when they do things that are out of accord with Scripture, right? You would have no right to do any of those things if you truly viewed them as an outsider to the faith. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So our children are a part of the church. They're inside the church, not outside of it. Which doesn't mean that we do less to encourage them in their faith. It means we do more. Acts 2.39 says, For the promise is for you and for your children. And so we teach our children and encourage them in the promises of God. The promise is for them, too. Christian Smith, who is a professor of sociology at Notre Dame, uh, has recently published some landmark sociological scholarship about how the faith is handed down from one generation to the next. From a sociological perspective, what makes it the most likely that the children of Christians will confirm their parents' faith? And this is what he says. Listen to this quote. Among all possible influences, parents exert far and away the greatest influence on their children's religious outcomes. The empirical evidence is clear. In almost every case, no other institution or program comes close to shaping youth religiously as their parents do. Not religious congregations, youth groups, faith-based schools, mission and service trips, summer camps, Sunday school, youth ministers, or anything else. Those influences can reinforce the influence of parents, but almost never do they surpass or override it. What makes every other influence pale into virtual insignificance is the importance, or not, of the religious beliefs and practices of American parents in their ordinary lives, not only on holy days, but every day, throughout weeks and years. It's the end of the quote. As a new parent myself, that's a lot to take in. No institution or program comes close to shaping youth religiously as their parents. So parents, how are we doing? You know, I trust all of you already recognize just how significant a task raising your children is. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But how are we doing? How is raising our children in the faith going? How is raising ourselves, so to speak, in the faith going? Our children are watching us more than anyone else in the world. How important or unimportant our religious beliefs are, in our case, the gospel of Jesus Christ. How important or unimportant is the gospel of Jesus Christ in our ordinary lives is what our children are looking for, what they're seeing. Not just on Sundays, not just on holidays, but every day. And so we can't outsource this. It's every day. And that was one of the most shocking findings from Christian Smith to me. He says, church, youth group, mission trips, summer camps, Christian schools, Sunday school, youth pastors, all pale into virtual insignificance compared to the influence of parents. Does that make you feel like you need Jesus? (laughs) It makes me feel that way. Does it make you feel like you need the church's help? It makes me feel that way. And so how can we as the church help? You know, if you've been zoning out because you're not a parent, you need you to zone back in. Parents can't do this alone. They need their whole church. We need the whole church. You know, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Because a church is a covenant community, a family, 
Whether you have children or not, all children in our church are your children. We all have the responsibility for caring for all the children and helping to pass the faith down to them. And part of that will include Sunday school, leading youth group, involving some of the older kids in your community group discussions. But it also means, in light of Christian Smith's scholarship, that one of the best ways that you can care for the children in our church is by caring for their parents. Encourage them. Bless them. Hold them accountable. You know, ask them good questions. How is your walk with Jesus going? How is your ordinary life showing your children that Jesus is your Savior? Are you teaching your children to repent and ask for forgiveness by you yourself repenting and apologizing and asking them for forgiveness when you need to? You know, our parents need our help as a church, and so let's help them. Our church has been entrusted with the task of passing on the faith to the next generation. We all have to participate in that task. Now, back to Moses. Even though he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, rather than identifying with Pharaoh's family and their gods, the faith of Moses' biological parents are ultimately passed down to him. As he chose to identify with the Hebrew people and their god, the Lord, rather than the Egyptians. But that had a cost for Moses. And that takes us to our second point, the faith to endure mistreatment. Now, I don't know why, but uh, for as long as I can remember, I've always been drawn to endurance sports. From uh, middle school summer swim team in the summers to cross-country and track when I was a high school student. I uh, ran a couple half marathons in college, and in my more recent years, I've gotten into cycling just drawn to endurance sports. And the thing with endurance sports is that they always entail a temptation. You know what I mean? Uh, With endurance sports, there's always this temptation to give in. The the temptation is to give in and quit, right? Like, you never see someone in the 100-meter dash say, just too tired after 50 meters to finish, I'm going to quit, right? But with races like the marathon, people drop out all the time. You know, endurance sports come with this temptation to give in or quit, And so to combat that temptation, I can remember training for cross-country as a high schooler, and I would run around this loop in my neighborhood, uh, and I would pass by my my house like every half mile or so. So I might be out on a a five-mile run, uh, but every half mile, I would pass by my house, and inside the front door of my house was air conditioning. Inside the front door of my house was water. Inside the front door of my house was Relief, And so every half mile, I would mentally have to resist the temptation to give in and quit. I would have to actively choose to press on. Yes, all endurance sports participants do have a few screws loose. Uh, But as I think about uh, what draws me to them is the spiritual parallel. As Christians, we're often in situations where we're tempted to give in. We're tempted to quit being faithful and instead follow the ways of the world rather than the way of Christ. Our passage in Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 25, says that by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses had the opportunity to live a life of comfort and luxury. He could have embraced his status as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, I mean, that would have put him very close to the throne. He would never have had an earthly care in the world, right? But instead, instead of choosing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, an Egyptian, he chose to be called a son of Israel, a Hebrew. 
you know, Exodus 2.11 says that when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And when he saw that, he didn't say, thank goodness I'm on the side of power. No, when he saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew, he said, that's one of my people. I'm not an Egyptian. I'm a Hebrew. Now, as an aside, uh, if you keep reading, Moses actually goes too far here. If, if you read on, he'll, he actually ends up killing that Egyptian who was beating the Hebrew. And that causes all sorts of problems for Moses. He should not have done that. And, uh, but that's a sermon for another time. My point in all this is that Moses saw two people that he could rightfully identify with. The Egyptians, the ones who were in power, who were doing the mistreating. And the Hebrews, the ones who were enslaved, who were being mistreated. And uh, by faith, he chose to be mistreated rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It would have been sin for Moses to live in the comforts of Egyptian royalty while his own flesh and blood were being mistreated. What's more, God was calling and preparing Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. To do anything else besides what God was calling Moses to do would also have been sin for Moses. But for Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, he would have to become like them. He would have to forego the fleeting pleasures of sin, of living like an Egyptian, and endure the mistreatment of the people of God. And that's exactly what he chose to do. Hebrews 11.26 says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Do you consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of this world? Do you, do you understand what that means? When, when in, in the course of your Christian life, something you do or something about you is aligned with Christ, and the world says that that thing makes you second class or worthless or worse, do you view that as worth more than the worldly treasure? You know, when in the severely overworked and burned out Bay Area, you refuse to work yourself to death because you're made in the image of God who rested from his work. Because you've been freed from slavery, so you don't have to work every day. Because your priorities are lined up with Christ, who wants you to care for your family, to have your soul restored, to rest. When you do that, and people say that you're lazy, they say you're unambitious, you're not entrepreneurial enough, you have too many boundaries, do you believe that that's more valuable to endure that than the treasures that would come from giving in? Or... In our sex-saturated sex society, when you commit yourself to the biblical sex ethic, that God made marriage for a man and a woman, and that God made sex to be with you and who you're married to, not with someone you're not married to, not with yourself in a screen, but for marriage only, when you commit yourself to that, what the Bible teaches, and people say that you're prude, you're old-fashioned, you're puritanical, do you believe that enduring that is worth more than the treasures of giving in? or whatever the case may be for you, when the systems and structures and ideologies and cultures of this world go against what Christ has called you to, and you go with Christ and against the world, do you believe that the mistreatment you endure is more valuable than the treasures of this world? If you do, this is what Jesus says to you in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you believe that? Do you have faith in that? That the mistreatment you go through in this life is seen by God. That he's going to make it right one day. You'll be vindicated. You'll be blessed. The kingdom of heaven will belong to you. You'll be rewarded in heaven for what you went through here, for the mistreatment that you endured. Do you believe that? Do you believe it enough to leave treasures and comforts behind and endure mistreatment? Do you know that that's actually exactly what Christ did for you? You know, Moses' choice to endure Moses chose to endure mistreatment so that he could lead his people out of slavery. And that's exactly what Christ did for you, too. That's what Advent and Christmas are about. Jesus choosing to join us, to become like us. Jesus left the comfort and luxury and treasures of heaven to become a human and live a life of mistreatment and oppression so that he could lead his people out of slavery so Moses' example is really pointing us to Christ. Just like Moses saw the mistreatment of his people and said, enough is enough, I want to join them and lead them out of Egypt, Matthew 9.36 says that early in Jesus' ministry, he saw the crowds and had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he became like them so he could become their shepherd. He became human. He took on flesh to become like us. He endured the same types of mistreatment that we endure, and much, much more. Philippians 2 says that Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus chose to leave behind comforts and luxuries and treasures to die for you. Doesn't that make you want to do the same for him, for those that he loves? Christ gives us the power to endure mistreatment. Christ chose mistreatment for you. Christ was mistreated on your behalf. Okay, we've covered the faith of parents and the faith to endure mistreatment. Let's wrap up with our final point, the faith to see the invisible. Uh, we named our daughter Lucy for many reasons, um, but one of them was because of the character Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, she is the embodiment of faith throughout the books. And in the books, there's a lion named Aslan, who is not so subtly a representation of God, of Jesus. And in one of the books, Prince Caspian, a major part of the plot rests on the fact that Lucy continues to see Aslan directing them when the rest of her siblings don't anymore. They used to in the previous books, but in this book, they're having trouble seeing Aslan. And it causes them to doubt Lucy. She'll see Aslan directing them and say that she should go this way instead of that way, but they don't believe her, and they do the opposite. Of course, later on, Lucy is vindicated, and everyone comes to see that Aslan really was there directing them, and Lucy had been right after all. And so we named our daughter Lucy in part because our prayer for her is that she would continue to see God even when nobody else around her does, that she would have faith to see the invisible. Moses saw the invisible, so to speak. 
Obviously, for something to be invisible, it means that you can't see it with your eyes, but that doesn't mean you can't see it, right? In a slightly metaphorical but still very real sense, you can see invisible things. Our passage in Hebrews eleven twenty seven makes this point. It says, Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses saw the one who is invisible. And that's a, a key part of faith, seeing, in some sense, what's invisible. So Hebrews 11.1 1 says, uh, the beginning of this whole by faith series started here. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So part of faith is the conviction of things not seen. You don't see them with your eyes, but you still see them in some sense. You believe them. In fact, living only by what you can see with your eyes is a contrast with faith. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says that we walk by faith, not by sight. And we do so because there are things that we can't see with our eyes, but we can know, that we can have faith in, that are actually more real than things we can see with our eyes. I mean, the most important of all being God himself. And so the author of Hebrews mentioned several things some explicitly, some implicitly, that Moses saw that were invisible. I already mentioned one, Hebrews eleven twenty seven. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible, God. And uh, you might think that this is referring to the burning bush, uh, which was visible in a sense. Uh, although, of course, that was not the same as seeing God. God is actually the one who tells Moses that no one can truly see God and live. He's too holy. He's too glorious for our fallen eyes to look upon him. But again, you know, you might initially think that's referring to the, one of the physical manifestations of God that Moses actually did experience. But the verse says that seeing him who is invisible was why he left Egypt the first time before he encountered the burning bush. And so I think that this is just a description of Moses' faith. Moses saw God. He had faith in God. Even if he couldn't see him with his eyes, Moses saw the invisible God. But he also saw other invisible things. In uh, Hebrews eleven twenty six, it says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. For he was looking to the reward. What reward? Well, Moses didn't know exactly. It wasn't something he had seen yet, but he was looking at it somehow. You know, the treasures of Egypt, he could see. But this other reward that he was looking to, he couldn't see it with his eyes, yet it was more real to him, more valuable to him, and motivated his actions. Now, Moses knew very little about what this reward might be like. We know a little bit more. Although it is still something that we're looking forward to by faith, we don't know exactly what it's like, but some New Testament passages speak of a future reward to give us some sense. So Matthew 6, 19 through 20 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And this follows after instructions Jesus had just given in the Sermon on the Mount about giving to the poor, praying, fasting. And Jesus instructs us not to do any of those things in order to be seen by others. For if we do that, then we will have received our reward in full. You know, big whoop, the praise of man. But no, Jesus says to do these things in secret because our Father who is in heaven sees what's done in secret, and he will reward you later. 
with heavenly treasure. And so we should not seek the praise of man, which is seen in this life. We should seek heavenly treasure. And if earthly treasure in the situation is the praise of man, then it's parallel. Heavenly treasure is the praise of God. Not our praise for God, although we certainly should all and should do that. We will do that. But God's praise for us. And so later on in Matthew, Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable about what God's praise for us might sound like. The parable of the talents. Master gives three servants talents, essentially money, uh, to steward. And two of them steward the money well, uh, but the third does not. And I don't have time to talk about the third servant, but the two who steward the money well will hear this from the master. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Well done, good and faithful servant. So part of seeing what's invisible is looking forward to that reward. You know, don't you long to hear those words from God at the end? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to my joy. A vital part of the life of faith is looking forward to those words over and above anything else you're going to hear from man. You know, it connects back to enduring mistreatment, right? You could have the power to endure mistreatment if you know that God sees you and will praise your faithfulness one day. Well done, good and faithful servant. Don't seek treasure here. Seek treasure in heaven like Moses. Look to the reward. Okay, one final invisible thing that Moses saw. Hebrews eleven twenty eight says, By faith Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Moses saw salvation, or wrath, depending how you want to frame this. But Moses saw that without the sprinkled blood of the Passover lamb, wrath was coming. But with the sprinkled blood of the Passover lamb, salvation would come. You know, Moses saw an invisible salvation, and so he led the people to cover their doorposts with blood and to go to sleep and trust that by faith, that night at midnight, the destroyer would pass over their households, and they would be spared. They would be saved. As I've mentioned before, the Passover lamb for Moses and the people was a shadow of the true Passover lamb, Jesus, our Passover lamb, our salvation, the one that we can't see with our eyes, but we see by faith. But what's interesting about our Passover lamb, what's interesting about Jesus, is that he is the image of the invisible God, as Colossians 1.15 puts it. God is invisible. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the invisible God made visible. You know, it's like God saw us and how fickle we are, how much we struggle to believe, how hard it is it is for us to see invisible things. And so he made it a little bit easier. He made himself visible. He took on flesh. He became a man. He became a baby that grew up into a man, lived on this earth for 33 years. Jesus became visible for us, to help us, to help us to see him, to have faith in him. And of course, it was only for a time, 33 years. He's no longer visible to us. He's ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He'll come again, and we'll see him then. But for now, he's not visible to us. And so we're dependent on eyewitness testimony and the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a a little more difficult for us to believe than it was for those who actually saw Jesus with their own eyes. And uh, Jesus alludes to this when he's speaking to Thomas, who doubts, in John 20. Jesus says to Thomas, You believe because you've seen me, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet 
have believed. You know, don't know exactly what the blessing is, but Jesus recognizes that for us, living after his ascension, it's harder to believe because we don't see him with our eyes, and yet there's blessing for us if we believe. And to later Christians, uh, Peter, who did see Jesus, uh, but to later Christians who didn't, Peter writes this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We love Jesus and believe in him, even though we don't see him with our eyes. We believe in him. We rejoice with inexpressible joy. We're filled with glory. We obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, because God did make himself visible to us in Christ. You know, one of the themes around Advent is light and darkness. And light represents what you can see. Darkness represents what you can't see. And Jesus is the light of the world. And at Christmas, that light entered our dark world. What was hidden and obscure, or at the very least unclear before, begins to become visible, more clear in Christ. And the thing about light is that even the tiniest light can't be snuffed out by darkness. John 1.5 says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So that's why we hang Christmas lights on trees and houses or whatever at Christmas time, because even the tiniest light shines through the darkness. And so these next few weeks, as you put your Christmas decorations up or see them around your neighborhood or town, remember, those lights ultimately point us to Jesus, the light of the world, the invisible becoming visible. The darkness, the confusion, the unknown are slowly being pushed back because Jesus, the light of the world, came for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for being the light of the world, for entering into the darkness and beginning to shine your light. Father, we pray that you would give us faith to see that light. We ask, Lord, that we would be able to see more and more the things that are invisible. We would have faith more and more to endure mistreatment. That we would be looking to the reward that awaits us in heaven. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would fill us and grow us, help us to be a family together that passes on our faith to the next generation. Pray this all in your Son's name, Lord. Amen.